to tell you a geographical story. Uh, I've got 12 minutes to cover 12,000 years, so I'll be moving at a speed of 1,000 years a minute. Um, and it's a geographical story because I believe that history is doing us a disservice at the moment. History, as we know, only goes back a couple of thousand years. And you may have observed in the, in the news feeds and so on that various politicians are hijacking fairly restricted aspects of history for their own ends. Um, I believe that if we're going to understand the context of our current predicament, then we need to think geographically. Geography, people, places, the environment, and most importantly, the interactions between those three is a much more complicated discipline, subject, field of uh, amusement and living than history, to my mind. Um, uh, and uh, in the context of Britain, the story that matters is not the historical one the last 2,000 years, but the geographical one the last 12,000 years. Now, 12,000 years ago, outside this tent, the mean winter temperature was minus 17 degrees centigrade. There were herds of reindeer migrating each summer up the Evenload. There were glaciers in the Lake District. There was a 400-meter-thick ice cap sitting on Rannoch Moor in Scotland. Now, in about 9,700 BC, there was an episode of extreme climate change, which is why this is the start of our geographical story, 9,700 BC. Now, at the time, Britain was part of the continent, uh, fixed geographically by being connected uh, through a, a low-lying isthmus across the southern North Sea, what is now the North Sea, uh, to what is now northern Germany. So you could travel over land from the Evenload to Kamchatka in eastern Asia and all the way south to Table Mountain at the tip of South Africa. We were connected to the continent, whether we liked it or not. Very cold. There was nobody living, no human beings living in Britain at all at the time. We were a peninsula on the tip of northwestern Europe. Uh, you would have seen, along with the reindeer, herds of wild horse, uh, bear, steppe piker, a lemming, wolves, bears, of course, um, not much moving in deep winter. These were mainly summer animals. But we had this episode of extreme climate change in 9,700 BC. Temperatures bounced upwards by as much as 7 degrees centigrade in perhaps as little as 50 or 100 years. So the world these animals knew fell apart. Uh, the glaciers melted, the ice caps melted, and the landscape greened incredibly quickly. Uh, within about a 1,000 years, the temperature had bounced up to modern temperatures. So it's a very uh, extreme episode of climate change. The uh, land mass was still, that we know as Britain, was still a peninsula attached to, to Europe. And into this warming green peninsula walked our ancestors who had been living through the Ice Age in refugees, refugees in, on the continental landmass, places like uh, the, the cave systems of France and so on, Spain. Spain had been continued, continuously occupied for 30,000 years, much warmer, of course. So people started to migrate across the peninsula into Britain. Now, this thermal window has now let in 64 million of us, of course, but back then, there are about 10,000 people at most wandering around, hunting, gathering on this peninsula. It was like a kind of gigantic game park. Uh, there are a lot of trees, about 20 billion trees 
in Britain. So that's about one, uh, one person to every two million trees. So if you went for a walk in the woods, you'd be bumping into an awful lot of tree trunks. And as Izzy suggested earlier on, the favoured habitats, both for us and for the animals, were not actually the deep wildwood, but the glades, the kind of open pasture land between the trees, where on these kind of... Uh, these zones of transition between open grassland and, and uh, wildwood, you had a much uh, deeper biodiversity, much better hunting and foraging. Uh, it was uh, a, a land that uh, changed pretty rapidly because when you get ice melting, so much ice melting, the land uh, bounces upwards because the Earth's crust is slightly elastic. So Scotland was rising out of the sea, southern Britain tilting into the sea, uh, as we know, the Scots would like that process to accelerate. Um, but, uh, 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 but, but, and of course, it's not a kind of nice, gentle process. There are fits and starts because uh, the Earth's crust, um, once you relieve it of huge weight, undergoes Earth tremors. And um, it was probably one of these tremors that triggered an underwater landslide off the continental shelf near Norway and an area about the size of Scotland plummeted into the depths and set up a kind of standing wave, a tsunami, that came southwards through the North Sea. Now, it's still not entirely clear when exactly we became an island, but this tsunami did play a part in it. Um, and it's quite possible that it was this tsunami in about 6,000 BC or so that actually inundated uh, Doggerland, the last low-lying bit of our isthmus, and we became cut off from Europe physically. It was a, a very brisk uh, Brexit. Uh, we're not talking about three or 30 years of arsing around, but probably two or three minutes, uh, and we were an island. Uh, now, interestingly enough, for those thinking that we can become an island uh, conceptually now, uh, all traces or most traces of human uh, habitation on Britain disappeared, despite the fact that we were on the face of it the perfect habitat. Climate very much like today's, unbelievably rich game park. For about a thousand, maybe two thousand years, not much was seen to be happening to this great wilderness, and it really was a wilderness in those days. But then in about 4050 BC, uh, so we're already kind of 5,000 years into the story, um, we had a kind of reverse D-Day, and uh, people from what is now northern France came across the channel in open boats, and they brought with them all sorts of traditions, habits that we didn't have. We were still nomad nomadic hunter-foragers following the herds to and fro up and down the country, up and down the, 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 the island. Um, and then these people came over in open boats, bringing with them ideas like mining. So the very earliest known major disfigurement, alteration, call it what you will, to the British landscape was nothing to do with farming, actually. It was to do with mining on the South Downs. If you go to Harrow Hill, for example, close to the uh, South Downs way, you'll see a kind of grass mogul field. And those are all flint mines, Neolithic flint mines. About 400 of them along the South Downs way. Why they were digging for flint is not known, because you could pick it up off the surface. So probably these deep flints removed in situ from underground seams, had some kind of mystical or spiritual value, or perhaps physically they were less brittle, and we still don't know, as far as I know, 
experiments haven't yet been conducted. And it may have been that they needed to be reshaped less often if you got them from deep underground or whatever. These were the first major disfigurements of the British landscape. Thereafter, it all happened very quickly. It only took 200 years for the Neolithic habit of building permanent structures above ground. Remember, we were hunter-gatherers. We left no imprints apart from uh, affecting certain ecosystems where we, we tended to forage them uh, until they died out locally, then moved on to somewhere else. So we weren't being very green as hunter-gatherers. But um, once the Neolithic people came here, they started building above-ground structures. I'm sure you've all seen them. Uh, henges, uh, long barrows, round barrows. It only took 200 years for them to spread from Kent and Sussex to Western uh, Wales and uh, to the Clyde in what is now Scotland. So the Neolithic Revolution happened very quickly. And it was all downhill from there on because the Neolithic people were farmers. Uh, they brought with them domesticated sheep, pigs, goats, cows, the rest of it. The orcs had virtually been uh, hunted out. And uh, they also um, uh, brought with them the habit of living in settlements, year-round settlements, uh, which is something we hadn't done before. So from then on, the wilderness was in full retreat. And if you want to see just how serious it was that early, go to Dartmoor and you'll see field systems dating back to 1500 BC, rectangular field systems. So this, this kind of checkerboard, this rectilinear checkerboard of farmers' fields was marching across the landscape. The wildwood was in retreat. Oliver Rackham reckons that by 500 BC, half the wildwood had already gone. Completely astonishing. So, you know, this wasn't all modern, uh, uh, the modern eras that destroyed the landscape. Um, I'm going to skip forward now to um, the, next, uh, the next kind of big moment, which was probably, um, let's go for 16, um, now let's go for the Romans, actually, because they came over, uh, we, we kind of, there's a big move down from the hills into what we might think of as proto-towns, um, and this happened in the late Iron Age, and um, we, were, we were settling in, there's a place called Silchester near, um, near Reading, which is one of our earliest known towns. Um, there are about 20 of them. They're known by archaeologists as Opida. And people were living together, not in villages or hamlets or in remote farms, but in, in a big gathering in physically demarcated areas by banks and rivers. And they were minting their own coins. And they were part of the Eurozone. They were exchanging goods and services with, with the continent. Um, so this is about, let's call this 50 BC, 100 BC. But then just as we kind of got into this idea of urbanisation, which as we know now is, is the future green way of living, and we were invaded by an army of psychopathic builders who completely wrecked the place. And um, suddenly Britain, instead of kind of feeling its way evolving into being urban, an urban species, um, were invaded by a bunch of Italians who um, imposed their system on us. They only stayed for 300 years. They built 7,000 miles of roads. And more, most significantly, they built about 100 Romano-British towns. Now, when their empire collapsed, as all empires do, all those towns disappeared as well. And, and we went back by 500 AD. We were back to living in villages again. We had no surviving towns. So they set us back about 800 years, roughly. Um, absolute nightmare. So um, let's skip forward to 880. Uh, AD and our, um, our, uh, our, our kind of our, 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 our first town planner 
arrived. Very famous guy, Alfred the Great, fighting the Vikings and, uh, and kind of withdrawing from this threat, he instructed his people in Wessex to build um, fortified settlements, each with its own mint and each with enough internal space to occupy refugees from the Vikings. So these became the kernel of our modern towns, places that were secure, places with a market function and places with enough internal space to absorb other people. And if you look at any modern town, those are the three defining characteristics of a successful modern town. And we haven't really looked back. In fact, we were so good that by 1620, uh, we lost the last of our wilderness. So it, very recent, isn't it? 1620, very Why 1620? We, we lost it in Dagenham as well, a very famous place. The re, the why Dagenham? Well, because um, by 1620, the wildwood had gone, but there was still a necklace of beautiful wetlands down eastern England, um, right the way from the Humber down to the Cambridge levels. And uh, you could move across this wetland, this kind of reed-fringed wetland with impunity. Uh, it was rather like the marsh Arab part of Britain. Um, and it was a real problem for the farmers. They knew that the soil beneath these fresh waters were incredibly fertile. They just couldn't figure out how to get rid of the water. So in 1620, the Dutch came over and they drained Dagenham marshes. And that was the end of the British wetlands because they then went up the Humber, moved south to Cambridgeshire, and we lost all the wetlands. So 1620, Dagenham was the end of the wilderness. Um, thereafter, it's really been a process of, of um, kind of mechanistic cultivation, as Izzy has already described. Um, there was a big tipping point, you could say, in uh, 1850, which is when we passed that point where, when more people were living in cities and towns than in the countryside. This is a really, really big moment. So we've been more urban than rural since 1850. About 21 million of us in the whole country, a third of what there are now, but we're more urban than rural. So it's a very, very big moment. Um, now, um, as, we, as, we, as we scroll forward into the, uh, the, the current century, interestingly, what we have is a situation where most of Britain is actually still very green. If you look around us now, we're surrounded by fields and woodlands and so on, and I, you, you would be surprised at how much has been preserved. Um, 98% of Britain is still green, 98%. If you travel, as we all do, by car or train or whatever, look out the windows, you're going to be seeing that all the time, this kind of built structure that we've created, where the road furniture, uh, offices, sit roundabouts, uh, uh, bus stops, all of, all of the concrete, the brick, the glass, and so on, that cover the built part of the landscape. But that's only 2% of Britain, only 2%. So 98% is still green. And the big challenge, as Izzy's already pointed out, is how to improve the quality of that 98%. So the real story, the real kind of quest, uh, among many others for us, is to, um, is to improve the quality of that, 20, of, of that 98% through regenerative farming and so on, improving biodiversity. Now, that's the end of the story, but I just want to go back to the beginning and, and, and remind you that it is a geographical story framed by these two episodes of extreme climate change. It starts with extreme climate change. The last time 
since today when we were going through such a big episode of climate change was the beginning of the story I've just told. This is a truly momentous episode that we're in already. So we have an awful lot to fight for. We led the world into the Industrial Revolution, Britain did, and to my mind we have an obligation to lead the world out of it. Uh, it's very important, I think, that we regard our own story as geographical rather than historical. Thank you all very much indeed.